That's great stuff. Donnie, I hear that you can do turkey calls. I hear you're a gobbler turk. Come over here and give us a turkey gobble. So uh, mine was lame. This is a professional turkey gobbler guy right here. Go you got to do the hen first. Oh, do the hen first. Yeah. That's the hen. He'd make Alvin York homesick, wouldn't he, huh? You'd have to widen the door to get him out the door. Yeah. <laughs> His hen was really good, too. You don't even need a call, man. You just go out and... You know, I always thought it was a dirty trick in spring turkey season because the whole idea is they want to mate. So you get this turkey, male turkey, all excited about he's going to mate with a hen. He walks around the corner and gets a 12-gauge in the face. That always sounds like it was a tough deal for me. Anyway. Now, last week, we looked at our second set of principles uh, in this last section of uh, Proverbs chapter 11, and uh, I, I think it's probably one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible. It's very clear, very open, very understandable, uh, that really lays out the number one fundamental uh, function of, of any church, uh, any pastor, and of course, uh, you and I as Christians, and that's the job of, of spiritually uh, reproducing ourselves and duplicating uh, that that God has given us uh, into other people. And also in this passage, as we started looking at it, we saw the key word was the word desire. And desire is the key of everything we do. The desire to, uh, as a Christian, to build a sacrificial Christianity over a convenient Christianity. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. Last week in particular, uh, we talked about the incredible principle of scattering the Word of God and God bringing back the increase. And we looked at that. And uh, one of the greatest uh, truths of all the Bible we saw last week, and that is if you want to keep it, you have to give it away. We talked about that, how important it, that that is. But also, uh, we saw how that you have to keep uh, some of the Bible for yourself. And uh, that's very important. Meat for you. That jewelry box concept. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 has always been a, a, a favorite verse of mine. And uh, if you don't have it already, it ought to be one for you. It says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed <coughs> belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Simply the secret things that God gives you and only gives to you. Those are the things that you keep. There'll be a lot of things in your relationship with God that God gives you that you need. And uh, I'm not saying that there aren't times that you don't share that with somebody else, but there's many things in your life with the Word of God that you just have that are yours. And, uh, you know, uh, this verse here talks about passing the inheritance of the Word of God that God has given you uh, onto your family and onto your children. And today we'll look at a couple of more verses and we'll develop out of them uh, more principles that are really an asset to building our lives around. Now, when it, comes to, when it comes to God, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible, uh, we talk a lot about and hear a lot about being Christ-like, uh, being like Christ. And uh, we hear preachers talk about that we ought to be like Christ in everything that we do in our lives. But many times, most of the times, it's just a term. They never really explain it. Uh, you know, being Christ-like will be in the relationship uh, that a man or woman has uh, taken the Word of God and, and, and learning about Christ, learning all the aspects of a relationship with Him, 
And then through that, we pick up the character qualities that he has. That's really what Christ-like means. Many people think it's, you know, going to church. Now, I don't know how to tell you this. Jesus never went to church a day in his life. He didn't have them back in his time. So he didn't go in church. It isn't the way you dress. You know, a lot of people think that if you follow the rules, that makes you Christ-like. Christ-like in the Bible is simply nothing more than you having a relationship with him and picking up the character, character qualities that Christ has and bring them into your own life. You hear me say it over and over and over again. You are who you hang out with. It's just that simple. You hang out with people who love God, you're going to continue to build yourself toward that way. You start to hang out with people that don't love God, it starts to wear on you. You can tell, you know, you can be around the Word of God and be around the things of God, and then you'll go, go someplace for a weekend and get out of the way, and you'll be around some people who don't care about God and the things of God, and you can tell it has an effect on you if you're not careful. And, uh, you know, so we, we, we talk about that nothing in the Bible uh, is more important than that statement. And it's the duplication and reproducing concept, but in reverse, in a bad way. Psalms 1 is a great verse, and it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And anybody who can read that, and we've talked about it many, many times, you can see the progression. Once you start cease walking with God and start walking with the counsel of the ungodly, and I love the word counsel there because it suggests that you start listening to them. You start taking their counsel instead of God's counsel. When you start walking with the counsel of the ungodly, then the next thing is you're standing in the way of sinners. You've stopped walking, and now you're standing with them. And then the last one says you're sitting in the seat of the scornful. There's a process in every Christian's life based on who you hang out with that you either get better on a level going toward the Lord or you'll get worse going away from the Lord. And it depends on the desire and understanding that great principle of duplication. You either duplicate in your life the character qualities of God or you duplicate in your life the uncharacteristic qualities of the world. And, uh, you know, and when you look at Christ and you look at his qualities, without a doubt, the greatest character quality of God is the aspect of, of giving. And uh, that is the greatest single aspect of God, his giving of himself for you and me. And when a child of God gets a real Bible-based relationship with God, I mean based on the Scriptures. I mean building the character qualities of God in your life. When you have that, then that Christian, too, will be about giving to others what God has given to him. And this is what our whole chapter or our passage here has been about. You'll get that character quality of giving to others. You know, I'm a pastor and a pastor of a church, and I, I'm embarrassed uh, many times and uh, to let people even know that simply because of the fact that the, the mindset today and the tragedy that churches and pastors are, are just all about money today. You know, it's a standard joke. It's a standard joke with the radio preachers and the people on the uh, TV who, that all that they do is want money. And yet it's the same way in churches today. It's a joke that you go to big churches and you get 20 minutes of the Bible and 40 minutes of, you know, we need more money. And, you know, uh, they have gotten themselves, and there's a reason for it. They have gotten, and I want you to understand this. There's a mindset behind it. They have gotten themselves into such financial trouble uh, because of the bad, terrible choices and the decisions that they made in leading their church. 
So when you get extended, I mean, everybody here understands the concept. If you have a family, you have, uh, you have a two-income family or a one-income family or whatever, you know that you, you, you only have so much money coming in every, every, uh, every month. And whatever level you're on, you have to live within that budget. You have to choose and prioritize things that you want to do versus things that you can't do. Many times it comes down to necessities over something that you would like to do or want to do. And that's, it's, it's true in everything. Where we got the idea that that's not true in churches, I have no idea. Where we ever got the idea that because it's a church and the pastor's in charge and he's got eight or 900 people out there or 1,000 people, that he can just, at a whim, do whatever he wants to do and then throw the burden of that on the back of the people because he's got some fantasy island concept of, of what he wants to do. And because of that kind of pressure, you know, then they've got to hammer the people. Every Sunday, you got to, you're faced with a, a terrible mandate. Every Sunday when you get up there, you're faced this next week with, with a mortgage payment that is off the roof, with, with all of the different things that you've been, spent money for and all the things that you've had to pay. You're faced with that every Sunday. And, and you, so they have to hammer their people on giving money and then more money. And, and the problem is there, there's never enough. I remember one time, this was years ago, Jerry Falwell, he was, uh, uh, you know, down at Liberty Baptist College, and uh, uh, he started a church down there in, uh, down south in Virginia. And uh, he needed to raise $5 million for a project. And I remember he had come to Kansas City, and he was speaking at the church where I was just a, a youth pastor back then. And, and uh, um, the pastor and him were buddies, you know. And, and I remember the pastor asked him, he had just got his $5 million dollars. And, uh, you know, everybody was happy about it and all that. And I remember the pastor, you know, said to him, he says, well, buddy, I said, you got your $5 million I heard this week. And the guy, he said, I thought you'd be excited about it. And he said, I am excited about it. He said, now my next problem is next week I need $2 million more. See, it never ends. It never ends. And so when they're under that kind of pressure, you know what's got to happen. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. When you get under that kind of pressure and all you do is talk about money because that, what, that's got to drive everything you do. When you get into the pulpit, you're more concerned about raising the money for the things that you have done last week. And you know me, I follow the philosophy that God always orders what he pays for. And the problem that churches get into is a lot of people are ordering things that God never ordered, so you've got to pay for them. It's that simple. And when they only talk about money because that's what drives everything they do, then all the emphasis goes to building a church, goes to building a building, goes to building things. And they lose the Bible concept of, of Christians taking what God has given them and giving it to somebody else because it gets lost. You can't emphasize more than one thing in preaching. You simply can't. I'm going to get up here this morning and I'm going to either emphasize you learn the Bible and dedicate my whole time to that or I'm going to get up here and say, you know what, I just went out and bought the Crystal Cathedral out there in California someplace because Schuler died and it came up for sale. I didn't ask anybody about it. It's $78 million. Now, I need half of that by the end of the week. You got to push people. You got to put that out. When you feel that kind of pressure and burden, 
the real truth of the gospel and what you ought to really be building is people instead of buildings get lost in all of that. You can't do both. You can't do both. Now, in the Bible, there's two definitive chapters on giving uh, to the Lord, and they're found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Now, these two chapters, along with other places in the Bible, uh, they're used by every preacher, every con artist to milk the people and put them on a guilt trip uh, on giving. And let me tell you something. I've been in this business a long time. I've seen every trick that these guys pull. I understand how to do it. I was a church one time, and pastor had this great fiasco dream that, uh, that nobody in the other in the church cared about. The deacons were against it. Everybody thought it was nuts. Everybody thought it was crazy. But he pushed this thing and pushed this thing, and the church didn't have the money to do it. So he comes up with this grandioso scheme of every family in the church giving $1,000. Well, even if every family in the church would have gave $1,000, he still wouldn't have had enough. But he had to get what he got. So, you know, how do you do that? How do you motivate the people in your church? Now, let me say this. You'll have some people in your church who, uh, in a situation like that, who are just good people, and they want to do what's right, and they, they, they follow the leadership because they think that that's what they're supposed to do. And out of the goodness of their heart, they'll get duped by a guy like that. So they'll be the first ones to write a check for $1,000 and put it in the offering. But then you've got other people out there that don't buy into it, that don't believe it, that don't think it's what you ought to do. So they're not going to be part of it. So the next step is how do you pressure everybody to give? And this guy was a genius at it. So what he did is he put in the front of his church all the big sign with all the families who donated $1,000 to his project. And in his mind, he would get up there and he'd make a big deal about, uh, we thank God for the people that, you know, that really got, and, oh, it was nice and flowery and it was everything and it was beautiful and it was wonderful. But the bottom line is the same time you're touting all these people, you're identifying out there all the ones who didn't. And that's a pressure tactic. That's a pressure tactic. Now, when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you'll see that the, the key to that chapter really has nothing to do with money, only it's a, oh, that it's a great chapter on giving. But it's about God's people making investment in people and ministry first, and when they do, everything else takes care of itself. And, and I might show you here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, very early in the first chapter before he even gets into the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9, he says this about these people. He says, and this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. What he's saying is here that long before these people gave a dime, long before I had to ever ask them to raise up money, and what he's doing, he's asking for money for the poor saints down in Jerusalem who are going through a tough time. But he says, I didn't have to even do that because before they ever gave a dime, they had given of their own selves first. That's what God wants. When you get a church of people who give of their own selves first and they realize that reproduction and, and, and duplication in somebody's life is the absolute essence of what a church and a ministry and a pastor and a Christian should be, I'm telling you, the rest of it will take care of itself. Now, let's look at our first verse today, and we'll see how far we get, making no promises today. And uh, I want to make sure we glean all of this. Look at verse 25. It says, The liberal soul shall be made fat, 
and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we love you today. Thank you for the good folks that you brought out today, and thank you, Father, for the Word of God that you provided for us, and help us to be a church that's about teaching people the Word of God. Lord, you always pay for what you order, and Lord, let us always stay within the ordering process that's clearly laid out in the Scriptures. Now, we'll thank you, Father, and praise you for all you do now. Help us to be better. Help us to be more like you. And help us to realize that the greatest fundamental quality that, of God is the fact that God gave himself to others. And we, too, as God's people, need to give ourselves to others. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a couple of things here that I want to spend a little time with today. First of all, the first thing I want you to notice is that you notice in this verse there's no negative here. All the other ones we looked at, there was a negative part and a positive part. And I talked about that many, many times and showed you now that we're into the Proverbs, you'll get a negative or a positive and then a negative or a positive and then reverse it sometimes coming through the verses, kind of like a contrast between the two. You don't have that in this verse. And the reason why is, is because when you take and start to give of yourself to others, there's never anything negative about that. It's all positive. There's never anything negative that's going to happen in your life about you taking what God has given you and given to somebody else. That's always going to be a positive thing. And what's going to follow here, as I lay this out, is you're going to see that positive thing, the increase coming back to you. The next thing I want you to see here is, is, is two key words that have to, uh, we need to see and understand. Remember now, the Bible is its own commentary. I'm not saying that you shouldn't look at commentaries. We sell them back here and <clears throat> try to get some good ones to help you. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, the Bible's its own commentary. The Bible's its own history book. And uh, I mean, the Bible covers history uh, in, a, in a proper way, in a right way, and you can always trust that. And my suggestion is if you're going to study any man's history out there, whether it be church history or whatever, whether it be Mayan, Ruckman's, or Newell's, or Schaefer's, or whoever you get, you always want to run it back and make sure it lines up with the history of the Bible, because the Bible is its own history book. But then the Bible's also its own dictionary. The Bible will define words differently than we do. Sometimes the Bible will have words will have two different meanings that you need to see, and this is what we've got today. Now, the first word I want to talk about here is the word liberal, and uh, he says the liberal soul. <coughs> Now, in our world today, that's a bad word. And it can be depending on the context of, of how you use it. Uh, the word liberal means to express yourself or to accept uh, things without any restraint. You know, giving all and holding back nothing. You know, liberalism in our government has basically destroyed this country and taken the greatness from it. And it's taken away all the personal accountability and responsibility that we have to ourselves. Now, I'm, 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 I'm not for, I mean, I'm, I'm for law and order 100%. But a liberal mindset will never see it. The liberal mindset will always punish the, the person that is, that is the innocent person and, and favor the person who's the guilty person. And it, it, it always goes that way. Wars are bad. Well, wars are terrible. I understand that. But wars are part of our world today. Wars are bad, so therefore the military has to be bad. All religions are okay. You know, there's no Jesus Christ. Can't talk about Jesus Christ. You can talk about God, but you can't talk about Christ. And they strip the country of any real moral value system, and it ends up in the chaos that we have today. You look across this country, 
in all of the terrible things that are happening. I mean, I mean all the terrible things that are happening with the people getting shot and the people that happen in this and the breakdown of this and the breakdown of that. I want to tell you something. You can sort your way through it and weed your way through it. When you get back at the end of the day, all of the chaos in this world today, all of the problems we have in this country today go back to one thing, and that is the day that preachers quit preaching this book and setting down a standard for right and wrong, and then moms and dads enforcing that standard in their children. I mean, it's just that, just that simple. I, I mean, I think of I, I, this last week and this poor guy that got shot by this police officer. You know what? <clears throat> that totally, and, I, and I, I wasn't there. I'm just saying. It looks like it's a totally in, in corrupt concept. I mean, absolutely. Shooting somebody in the back, running away, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I, but it's all around our country. And I, I'm not saying that the police officer isn't guilty for what he did. I don't know. The courts will figure that out. But what I am saying is this. When you live in a society where you just thumb your nose at the rules and you do what you want to do, I may not like policemen, I do, but I may not like them. But you know what? They're still the authority of this country, and when somebody says stop, I'm going to stop. When somebody puts their red lights on, I'd love to floor it and get on going. I'd love to lose them. I'd love to get them to the place where I'd hear that magical sound that they have no, they have no pursuit clause, so they just let me go because, you know, it ain't worth getting in a wreck and killing somebody over it. I'd love that to happen. I'd love to be able to, when he shut his lights off, wave at him out the window as I kept on going. But I'm not going to do that as much as I would like to. And I'm going to tell you something. I've been stopped by cops who were very disrespectful to me. I had a state trooper call, call, pull me over, and maybe it was the end of his shift. I don't know. Maybe his wife just left him. I don't know. Maybe his dog died. I don't know. I was going down to southern Missouri, and I was going too fast, and I passed on a double line. He pulled me over. He ripped me up one side and down the other. He just, t- I, mean, he, I mean, he threatened me with this. He threatened me with that. He threatened, and you know what? And I... I just sit there and took it, and I apologized, and I said, I'm sorry, and I didn't argue with him. I didn't do this. Was he out of control? Totally. But I respect authority. I don't have the guts that Mel Sabaka does. One time, my father, the Lord, got pulled over by a police officer, and he was railing him the same way, down in his face, and Mel just sit there, and he looked at him, and when the guy was done, the guy said, now, what do you have to say for yourself? And Mel said, your mouthwash is not making it. Not me, boy. He'd have had a big nightstick. He'd have clubbed me to death with that sucker. Bottom line is this. You may not always like it. I don't always like it. But you got to have laws and you got to have rules. What's wrong with our society today is that breakdown. We have no respect for authority. Your kids have no respect for your authority. The kids in the school beat up their teachers. They have no respect for their authority. They have no respect for anybody. When I was in high high school, they whipped you. You went down to the principal's office, and, you know, when they made schools back there, they made them so that when you walked down the hall, you could hear the echo everywhere. And the principal's office was always in the center, so no matter where your classroom was, you had a long green mile to walk to your execution. And when somebody, we all knew it, when somebody fooled around, 
You went to the principal's office. He had a he was proud of his paddle. And then a guy in woodshop decided when you drilled holes in the paddle, it made it even a better paddle. And we would all sit there quiet as church mice. This guy or this gal. And they whipped girls too. You want equal opportunity, ladies? There it is. And we'd all sit there and it would be quiet. You could hear nothing. And we'd all be waiting for, you know what, that crack heard round the world. Sometimes it was one. If the guy was a real problem, sometimes it was two. I've seen him get three. And boy, does it sting. I've seen the biggest, toughest guys on the planet come back with tears in their eyes, trying to be tough. But oh, another part of your body wasn't quite as tough. It's gone today. No, I'm not saying that whipping kids is the answer, but it sure makes you feel better after you do it. (laughs) There has to be an authority structure. There has to be something that a person knows. I can't go any farther. And it starts in the home. It starts with the family. And the reason why people get shot because they won't obey a police officer, right or wrong. The reason why people get shot and run or try to get pulled over by a speeding ticket and they take off and go, the reason why they do that, it all goes back when you unfold the layers in his own home where mom and dad said, don't do this. And he says, I'm going to do what I want to do. And mom and dad says, okay, it's where it starts. It's where it starts. It's where it starts. Uh, We've lost the respect for any authority today. When I grew up, you respected a police officer. That was ingrained in me. To this day, I respect them. I fear them. I don't want to do anything that I I realize. I'm even a little smarter that they have, when a cop pulls me over, and I I haven't been pulled over in years. But when I do, I put my hands up on a steering wheel. I put my hands out where he can see him. I know he's got a tough day. I know he doesn't know, you know, he can have a mundane day and make that one traffic stop and get killed. So I'm going to show him. You know what? Here, I got nothing to hide. Here's my hand. Here, where do you want me to go? I mean, I put over, I beep the horn. I'm sorry. You know, no respect for authority. Then you see liberalism in religion. This will be the social gospel. This will be what we call liberation theology. Liberation theology is simply the philosophy and the religion, it's a theology, that Jesus was a revolutionary. So if you live in a country like he did with an oppressive government, i.e. our government, that it's okay for you to revolt and take up arms against your country because that's what Jesus, he was a revolutionary. That's, that's, That's liberation theology. Crazy. No absolute truth. Everything is relative. No bad, no good. Pastors and deacons, you know, uh, they can, you, can, you can be whatever you want to be. No hell, no judgment, no sin. Uh, you know, God, uh, God, re- God is replaced with your higher power, whatever that may be. And the hallmark will be getting rid of all the differences between us. So the number one aspect of the Bible, doctrine, being able to rightly divide anything goes out the window. Liberalism is simply a person 
or will be a person who has no real boundaries or moral structure to them, no absolute standard to adhere to. Everything's okay. Solomon defined liberalism in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7, when he said, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. That's liberalism. A pragmatic heteroism approach to life. Situation ethics. The end justifies the means. Pleasure is a chief pursuit in life. It doesn't matter what happens as long as you are pleasured and pleased by it. No moral guidelines. Everything okay. No right, no wrong. No black, no white. Just gray. And it ends in a complete breakdown of government, family, and churches. And it winds up in anarchy. Because all three systems break down. So it has a bad connotation that we all were aware of. Giving all and holding nothing back. But in the Bible, there's another use to it that's a good term. And I want to talk about that for a moment. It's a good context. The liberalism of being liberal and scattering the Word of God. The giving of yourself to God. And on all that, you're liberal. You have no boundaries or limitations in what you'll do for the Lord Jesus. You're liberal in putting out the Word of God. You're, you're liberal in your ministry. It's everybody. Last week we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, that great passage that says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, and thou shalt find it after many days. And verse 2 says, Give a portion to seven and a portion to eight. That's liberalism in a good sense. Going beyond what's asked of you. If they ask seven, give eight. If they ask eight, give nine. Be liberal in your approach. And the reason why he said that is in the next part of that verse, because you don't know what evil's out there. And sometimes just going that extra mile, sometimes just going that extra phone call, that extra step, sometimes just putting your arm around that person the extra time or telling them you love them one more time will simply be the, the, the key that turns that lock. That's what he's talking about. Not holding anything back and giving what you have that God's given you and giving it to others. He says on down through there, you show in the morning, you show in the afternoon. And you sow in the evening. You want to put that in a practical application? You sow in the morning. When you're 10, 12, 15, 16, or 17, start sowing the Word of God in the early times of your life. When you grow up a little bit and you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, then sow in the afternoon. And when you get 50, 60, 70, 80, or 90, then sow in the evening time of your life. Be liberal about it. Now, our second word is the word fat. Now, again, we think about this as a negative word in the world and in the Bible. And it can be. There's two uses of the word in the Bible. One's good, and another one will be, usually be a reference to the Antichrist, like you have in Job chapter 15, verse 27. Now, in a Bible sense, verse 25, fat is good in our context. I mean, lean may be mean and thin may be in, but in the Bible, fat's where it's at. In the context. Now, biblically, in a spiritual sense, it's the fatness of our soul. You know, animals, those who hibernate through the winter, they'll always, in the fall, they'll put on layers and layers and layers of fat. They'll gorge themselves in September, October, because when they hibernate through the winter, they can't always get the food, and they got to sustain themselves. I used to 
we don't have many out here anymore, uh, out here, but back in Ohio, I used to be a, an advert groundhog hunter. A groundhog is, you know, can be about that big or they can get that big, and, and they live in the ground, groundhog, they live in the ground, and uh, they burrow down deep, you know, but they ruin crops. They, you know, farmers in Ohio would love you to come in and shoot them because they dig, I mean, they look like Motel 6s. I mean, there's holes everywhere, and the cows step in them, break their legs. And so uh, they build whole little, they're like prairie dogs, only they come to be 40, 50 pounds, some of them. They're pretty good size. And so you get out, and, you know, and me and another guy had a contest one summer, this is years ago, uh, when I was in Ohio, who could kill the most. We'd go out every night after work. I think I killed 128. He killed, you know, he beat me. He killed like 135. And we shoot him at four, 340 yards. My farthest shot was, I think, 550 yards. It took me about nine shots to get him. But 500 yards, they don't even know the gun's going off. They'll hear the bullet splack someplace. They'll come down and come right back up. So you get a lot of shots. When I hit him at 500 yards, you can tell he goes every which way. But anyway, when you start hunting them in the fall, and they're putting on that fat, and you get out there, and there's one about 40 feet from his hole, you know, and you miss him the first time he starts running from a hole, it looks like Jelly Belly Welly Melly running. I mean, there's fat blowing everywhere on him. He's packing it on because there's a winter coming, and he's going to have to sustain himself through that winter, through the layers of fat. That fat gets them through the tough times when the food is scarce. And in a spiritual sense, when he's talking about the fatness of the soul, it's the things that God fattened us up with that when we go through the lean times, and if there's any lean time today we're living in, it's the Laodicean church period. There'll be times in your life when you have to go through some tough times. There'll be some times in your life that, that you, you know, everybody, everybody thinks that, you know, the answer when I'm going through a tough time is God, just deliver me from the tough time. See, and so they're praying, God, deliver me from the tough time. That's not the right prayer. God won't, won't ever necessarily deliver you from the tough time. If you have a fatness spiritually about you, God will deliver you in the tough time, not from the tough time. But people can't get that today. And it's a spiritual fatness that will get us through. Look at Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. That's two of my favorite verses. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Now that famine there is not a famine of food. He tells you that. It's a picture of the day and age that we live in. Now I understand it's a picture of Israel in their time historically, but it's also a picture prophetically of the time that you and I are living in right now because we are going through the spiritual famine where people can't get the Word of God. They're wandering, they're running to and fro, they go from the north to the east, they seek it, and they can't get it. And yet I want you to know that verse. It says there, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. What I want you to know is that the word of God during this time, it's right here. He didn't say the word of God wasn't here. He's saying that it's here, but nobody's listening to it. That's the problem. Hosea chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 is another great passage during this famine. That shows you in that thing, he says that there's no mercy, no truth, and no knowledge of God in the land. A complete breakdown of what we know Christianity. And it's that fatness spiritually 
the fatness that, that God builds into your life of your soul. Now, as you run it through the Bible, you know, you, you, and study it, you know, in ancient times, most people don't even know this, the fat off of an animal was considered a delicacy. If you cut it off and you roast it, uh, it's got a very sweet taste to it. In the Bible, when the children of Israel were sent out to spies to, to check out the land, uh, God had given them, uh, you see the word used again in a good context. He says in Numbers 13, 20, he, said, he says, uh, and Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and sent unto them, get you up this way southward and go up to the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they shall dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities dwell in, whether they be tents or strongholds. Then he says in verse 20, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean. See? A fat land or a lean land. Can it sustain us or will we starve to death when we get there? Fat is the abundance of food and water and all the things that a nation needs to survive. And in a spiritual sense, when it talks about the fatness of our soul, it's talking about us having the sufficiency to get through. Proverbs 15.30 says, The light of the eyes rejoiceth in heart, and a good report maketh the bones fat. Now there's fat bones, see? Fat soul, now we got fat bones. That, in a spiritual sense, that's a strong structure for your spiritual body. That's your foundation. It says a good report. That's the Word of God. The gospel means good news. So it's showing you that fat used in the Bible in our context here is a good thing that builds you and sustains you and layers you with biblical principles that will get you through everything in life. So because of what fat represented in the Bible in a good way, if you want to continue on and study it, you'll find in the Old Testament offerings and the sacrifices that when they offered them, they didn't eat the fat. That's because of what it stands for, what it represents. Leviticus 6.12 says, And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offerings in order upon it. Here it comes. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fat gets burned up. And it's the smell of that. You remember over there in 2 Corinthians 2.15 when the Bible talks about, when you talk about Christ, it brings up the sacrifice of him on the cross. And the Bible says it's a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. That's what that Old Testament sacrifice represented. They burned that innocent animal. I don't totally get it. The smoke of that, in, smoke of that animal being burned, it's innocent went up. It appeased in God's nostrils and God appeased the nation of Israel of their sins. So when it comes to the fat, the fat is set apart to God. Because of any spiritual fatness that we have in our life and our soul, it only comes from the Lord. It's from Him. We don't have any spiritual strength. So when they offered that sacrifice, they didn't eat the fat. It went back to God. That's where strength comes from. That's where your fatness comes from. Now, you see how that works? So when you're liberal with your Bible, (laughs) I guess, you're all liberals this morning. When you're liberal with your Bible, scatter it, put it out, it will come back as 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 a fatness to your soul spiritually speaking. And one of the greatest truths of life that you'll ever find is that you'll see the longer that you get into the Bible, the more you'll see that every bad thing in this world is really a good thing that the world and the devil has twisted. And you look at those two words, we look at them as a bad thing, but in a spiritual sense, they're a good thing. Now look at the last part of verse 25. And he that watereth shall be watered also himself. 
Now, we've talked about this a lot lately. We've talked about how you really don't start to take off in your spiritual growth until you start putting out what you have. It's like the old sponge concept. You can take a sponge and you can mop up a lot of things with it, but it comes a point that you just keep pushing water around because it won't soak up anymore. It's absorbed everything to its capacity. And it'll never be useful again until you go ringing out. You know, your life and my life is the same way. You can only absorb so much on Thursday night and Sunday morning. You can only take so many notes and get so many things in your Bible. Then you become like that sponge that uh, is unuseful anymore. You have to go get wrung out. You have to give it out to somebody. And you see it in our own church. Our church is a very strong church. It has a real depth to it in men and women who really understand the Bible and its importance. Uh, this church is filled with people who, who, who can hold their own with anybody. Any pastor in this country, I'd put just about all of you guys and gals up against, certainly any Christian. You know, understand. You, 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 and if you don't think that's true, just let somebody try on for size sometimes. And yet you're not a warmongering herd, you know. I mean, you have, you have, a, you have discernment. You have compassion. You have the discretion. You have the ability to use the Bible and, and, and not just know it. But in truth, what God wants to give you and the simple fact that, that you have broken through that barrier, God, you've taken what God has given you and you have broken through that barrier that would held you back to get you to the next level. You've taken a convenient Christianity, which most of you had when you came here, and through a process, you've turned it around to a sacrificial Christianity, and you're willing now to take what you've got in you that God has given you and be liberal with it and put it back out, and you water people. Most of you don't know this date, October 14, 1947. A great event happened. One of the great heroes of mine down through history is Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager is the first man who broke the sound barrier. Sound barrier somewhere around 760 miles an hour, something like that. And when he did, it definitely opened up a completely new world in aviation. The sound barrier was a very strange thing, very scary thing. Many people thought you could never go through it. Because when you approach that speed in an aircraft, everything began to vibrate. Everything would begin to shudder. And they were afraid it would tear the wings off. They, and many people thought that, that in flight we had went as far as we could, that you just couldn't get through that sound barrier without destroying your aircraft and destroying yourself, that it was a brick wall of aviation that we were going to have to live with. Well, many people didn't believe that. And Chuck Yeager, in his little rocket plane, he proved that, and he blew through the sound barrier. Now, today, my goodness, we have planes that fly. That's called Mach 1 in today's terminology. We have planes that fly three or four times the speed of sound today. But back then, it was a really big deal. And it paved the way for the first seven American astronauts to enter the space age. If you ever get a chance, and probably most of you have seen it, everybody ought to watch the movie The Right Stuff. It's a great documentary, yet it's a movie that shows you how the two blended together. It starts out with Jaeger busting a sound barrier and winds up with the seven Mercury astronauts and shows you how it all goes together. But spiritually speaking, when you break the spiritual sound barrier of your life, in Christianity, which takes you to a new level now, to a level that you're now beginning to take what you have and minister to people. And I want to tell you something, that can be just as scary as him breaking the sound barrier. 
probably more so. If there's anything that holds God's people back from getting to that next level, I've seen them all my life. They'll come to a point, they'll come up that, they'll do great, but boy, getting in, strapping yourself into that rocket-powered plane, they'll blow you through to the next level where you now take what God has given you and you give it to somebody else, like him going through the sound bear, will scare the fire out of you. But you know what? When you do that, it will change all the dynamics of your Christian life forever. Just like Jaeger's famous flight changed the course of aviation, you will change the course of your life as a Christian and you will absolutely never be the same again. I, I told you many times, and, uh, and I, we've talked about it, I've showed you lots of times, the great principle uh, uh, in the Bible how that when God changes a man's name in the Bible, it really changes everything about him. And there's seven men that God changes their name and women in the Bible. Uh, you know, not all of them are good, but uh, many of them are. When God took Abram, who means high father, and he come to a point where God changed his name to Abraham, means the father of many nations. Now he's doing something for God. It's a picture of you getting to the place in your life where you get to that barrier in your life that you've learned everything, you've done well, you've grown, you've done really well. Now you've got to go to the next level. Sarai, princess. To Sarah, I will bless her with many nations. Jacob, schemer. How many of us, when we first got saved, that's exactly what we were. We, we figured it out for ourselves. We did it ourselves. We did everything the way we wanted to do it. But there was a process in our life and time that God changed who you were and who you are now, Israel. You see it with Paul. Saul represented the man who persecuted Christianity. Paul represents the man now who is going to take and take Christianity to the ends of the earth. And it's very interesting because it looks like in the same chapter where God, Paul got his name changed, that God changed his name in relation to the first man who he won to Christ, Paulus. That's an interesting thought. Interesting thought. You know, all of our names mean something. I mean, the Latin root word will have many, many meanings. And we've all been to Branson or been to some place where you could go around and get a coffee cup with your name on it and what it means. Bob, lover of truth. A rock. Men among men. Shoulders of steel. The wisdom of God. Beams of light. The fence of the truth. I got a really big coffee cup. <laughs> they mean something in the Bible. And in your life and my life, when you get to that point, it changes everything. Now look at verse 26. He that withholdeth corn. That would be some of my jokes. The people shall curse him. But blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. Now, this is a great verse with a great principle, but I want you to understand it. The concept of selling corn. He's not saying we should sell the Bible that God has given us, though I must confess, and I'm ashamed of this, that many churches and many preachers do that. There's churches where you've got to pay for everything you get. I mean, if you want to go learn the Bible, there's a class, you've got to pay for it. You've got to buy this. You've got to buy that. You've got to have... It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. To me, freely give, freely receive. I mean, I don't know how else you can get around that. But, but rather... He's putting it into an everyday context so we can understand it. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 18 and 14, 
uh, talks about the virtuous woman. It talks about that what she has is she's like a merchant. It gives you a picture that she's a merchant. And in, down, in verse, uh, down in verse 18, it talks about the Bible that she has is like merchandise. She perceives that her merchandise is good. He's putting it into an everyday understanding of it. He's saying in time of famine, when you have a storehouse of food, don't hold it back from hungry people. Now, the example of this is Joseph. You ever notice how Joseph was a type of Christ? And he's, he's second in command over Egypt, the type of the world. And when they were going through a great famine, Joseph, over the world, has a storehouse of corn when nobody else has it, and he takes it and he feeds the people. That's exactly what you and I are to do. You should have a storehouse of the Bible. You should have a storehouse of the Word of God if you're around here any length of time. And what you have to do is you have to take it and you have to give it out to other people who are starving. You have to feed them. We do it two times a month. You go down there and there's people, I know some just take the hot dogs and stick them in their pockets and never eat them. Some of them don't, don't, but there's actual hungry people down there that you give something to that they're starving and they're hungry and you give them something to eat and a bottle of water. How hard is it to grasp the concept on a much greater scale that there's millions and millions of people around you every day of your life who is starving to death spiritually and you got the corn. And in America, we are in that famine. There's a lot of hungry people around us. You see them in Wichita. You see them up in Lincoln, Nebraska. You see them right here in Kansas City. And you know what? Most of you came to this church for one reason. It was our big screen TVs on the wall. It was our mega, mega thousand dollars sounds around sound system. No, you came here for one reason, because you were hungry and we had something for you to eat. That's their only reason. Craig's moving out from Washington because there's nothing to eat out there. Lauren and Barb are coming down from, from Iowa because there's nothing to eat up there. Larry and Gail bought an 18-wheeler so they could drive 1,800 miles just to go to a church because there's nothing to eat up there. You were hungry. We had a warehouse of corn. We talked the last week about two times that the church goes into apostasy and has a famine in a spiritual sense. And that's really the prophecy of Amos chapter 8 that we looked at a minute ago. Look back to it again. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. People are starving to death. And when you, out of the abundance of what God has given you and fed you, take it and feed them, they'll bless you. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that when we give it out freely, I don't ever want you to get the idea that there wasn't a price tag connected with it. It's like the idea, we live in a, we live in a gimme society. We live in a handout society. We live in a handout Christianity. And yet I want you to know, we look around us and we take for granted the freedoms that we have, but if you've seen it on the bumper sticker and it's so true, freedom is not free. Somebody paid the price for you to have the freedoms that you have today. 
one of the reasons why I push you and your children to go to things like this military expo to see the veterans and learn about them and talk to them, educate, broaden their horizons because they don't want them growing up thinking that they have all that they have and it just was handed to them. Somebody paid the price beyond any imaginable price for our freedom we have in this country today. I'll tell you something else. Your salvation wasn't free. He hung on that cross there and he paid that price. And the Bible says over there in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that God purchased us with his own blood. But these are the things we take for granted. And I'll tell you one more thing. Your Bible wasn't free. We like to think it is. We like to make ourselves not think about those things. But there's a whole history of men and women who paid an unbelievable price for you to sit here and hold that Bible in your hand. They paid an unbelievable price in their families and their lives and everything up to their death so you can have a Bible that is the absolute Word of God that God got it down to you that you could ignore and not read. And here's the question today. I should have just started with this and we could have got out of here early. Here's the only question you got to answer. Your freedom is not free. Somebody paid the price for it. Your salvation is not free. Somebody paid the price for that. Your Bible is not free. Somebody paid for that. Now, here's the question. Will you pay the price today that the next generations can have the book that you have? Only question you got to answer. See, we live in a convenient Christianity. Oh, yeah, I'll do something for God as long as it does cause me any discomfort. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe this and I'll do that as long as nobody gets mad, as long as nobody says anything nasty about me, as long as somebody doesn't attack me. We live in such a convenient Christianity. The problem today is not putting it out. The problem today is God people are not willing to pray the price to put it out because there'll come a price with it. Now, he closes out the verse by saying, but blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. And, of course, the key word here, the key word here is the word head. Now, in the Bible, when uh, uh, the blessings of God come uh, to somebody, it's always connected with their head. Did you ever see that? Genesis forty-eight seventeen, when Jacob blesses those two boys, he puts his hand upon their head. In Genesis 49, 26, the Bible says the blessings of the Father will prevail on the head of Joseph. And in Exodus chapter 29, verse 7, when they anoint a new king who's going to be head of Israel, they pour that oil on his head, symbolizing the word of God and the blessing of God through the Holy Spirit of God, typified by the oil. Now, here's how these verses and here's how, here's how the blessings on the head work for you and me in the church age. Here it comes. Now, when you take what God gives you and you put it out to others, the liberal soul, scatter it, put it out, break through that barrier, get to that next level. When you take what God gives you and puts it out to others, the blessings come back on your head. All right, here we go. Number one, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, says the head of every man is Christ. So when you put out the Word of God and you do with the Word of God and you're liberal with it and you feed other people and give them food by scattering the Word of God, the Lord gets the blessing out of it. He's your head. Now in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it talked about that early church at Antioch. It says the mystery verse, and they ministered unto the Lord. 
Somebody says, how do you minister to the Lord? I'll tell you how you do it. You put out the word of God and the blessings come back on your head and the head of every man is Christ. He gets the blessing. Next thing, Colossians 1.18 says that the Christ is the head of the body, the church. So then the church gets the blessings. The third thing, Ephesians 5.23, the man is the head of the woman, so the wife gets the blessings. The next thing, the father is the head of his family, so his family gets the blessings. Now, do you see that? When you water the word and put it out and you're liberal with it, you get watered yourself. And when you put it out, the blessings come back to you, Dad, through you, Dad, on everything you're ahead of, starting with Christ, down through the church, down through your wife, right down to your family, the blessings of God. And it makes everything fat in a good sense. It layers up the family for whatever will come. It'll layer up the church that no matter what happened, no matter what transpired, no matter what takes place, you'll get through it. You'll survive it. Now, that's so simple. That's why the church and God's blessings on it, that's why God has blessed this church and given us what we have. There's no other reason. There absolutely is no other reason other than the fact that you people are willing to take what God has given you and do something with it, and you want the automatic spiritual blessings of God in your life that it cannot be denied. You just start going through that sound barrier spiritually and start being liberal with the Word of God, scattering it, putting it out, feeding hungry people with what God has given you, and the blessings will just move right down that line. And our church today is as strong as it is. It's as tough as it is. It's as durable as it is. It's as flexible as it is. It's as adaptable as it is. And it has the strength and the spiritual maturity it has for that one single reason. He blesses your head, your family, your ministry. Then he blesses the church. And then he blesses everything that you're in charge of. Your family gets blessed because you're a liberal approach to putting out the word of God, watering thirsty people and giving it to others. And it comes back on your family. You take the word of God and scatter it and the increase will come back to you. And God will bring those blessings upon your head, Christ. And he'll bless all that you're ahead over. Now you can begin to see how week by week in this last section of verses, it's absolutely imperative, absolutely imperative. And it impacts everything that we do. I told you when we started that there was eight fundamental principles for being success in our Christianity in this section. I've, so far, I've given you four. First week, we talked about your desire, the desire that is the key to everything. We talked about the scattering of the Word of God. Casting your bread upon the waters and finding it after many days. Now we talked about the liberal soul. Not holding back the corn, giving out. All coming to the place of not withholding what God gives you, the corn. And now we see it comes back on your head. Christ, he's the head of the church, the church. You're the head of your wife, the wife. You're the head of your family, the family, right down the line. Now there's four more to go. We'll pick it up next week as we continue to move down through here. But every week we're adding to these and you can begin to see how it all works and how it all comes together of giving out the Word of God. And my suggestion to you with all that God is doing here 
that all the opportunities that God is giving us today is an absolutely right time for you to make the decision in your heart you're going to blow through that barrier. The people are here to help you. I'm here to help you. You've got everything that you need when you get to that point to go to that next level. The only thing that will stop you, the only thing will stop you is that you are not willing to pay the price to give that Bible to the next generation. That I often thought, where would I be today if Peter Waldo looked at the Bible like most of God's people do today? He was the head of the Waldensians. I've often thought to my day, what would the Polyseans, what would I have done if the Polyseans took the position that most Baptists take? Or the, Walt, or the Huguenots? Or the Vogelbiles? Or any of those groups back there? Those men and women knew what they had, they knew what they believed, and it was imperative to them, not only for them and their own families, but they had the foresight to understand that if it didn't, if they weren't willing to pay the price, just as Christianity would have went nowhere if God was not willing to come down and pay the price, they understood that and they realized that the Bible that God gave them was only going to perpetuate itself down through history if they were willing to pay the price. Every man and every woman were willing to pay the price themselves to ensure that it got to me and it got to you. Now, here we are. I don't know how much time we got left, But if we got any time at all, the bottom line is this. The question is simply, are you willing to pay that price to get it to the next generation and the generations beyond? Are you training up your children to make sure that when you leave this earth, the legacy keeps going that ensures that in generations to come, when somebody now, if Jesus tarries has come in 100, 200 years, is talking about our time period, and they'll come back to this church, come back to you. And saying, if it wasn't for them people right there, just as I'm saying, if it wasn't for the Waldensians, if it wasn't for that church back there, we wouldn't have the book that we got today. Somebody, somebody has to be willing to pay the price. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you.